Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to an FS Club seminar, this time on possibly a subject very, very dear uh, to your chairman's heart. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Michael Minelli, and I'm joined here today uh, by Julian Edoizzi. Uh, Julian is the CEO of Poolry, and he's here today to talk about Resilience Re, designing a public-private response to pandemic and other systemic risks. Uh, so what we're going to do today is fairly straightforward. Uh, we're going to be having Julian present for about 20 to 25 minutes, and then we'll have a hopefully a very vigorous discussion. The discussion, of course, is only possible because we have a fascinating and wonderful group of sponsors. You can see our sponsors before you here. Uh, they range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance, uh, but we're particularly delighted to have them all here because today's subject it should be dear to all of us. It's about how we as society protect ourselves against the big risks that are out there. The format uh, is before you today in the sense that we're going to have uh, a me get out of your way as quickly as possible, uh, Julian do his talk and then the Q&A, but please do use the question and answer facility within the GoToWebinar application in front of you. The reason I say that is if you email me, I will get your question, but not in time to feed it into the conversation because I'm here with you uh, right now. And then just briefly, if I might, on a personal note, I'd like to say that one of the things I admire about Julian, and you can read all of his biography and everything online, as you know, we don't do long intros here, uh, is that the subject he's talking about today, he has been passionate about for nearly a decade as well. So he's not presenting a response just to COVID-19. This is a project that he's been working assiduously on for some time. And my personal interest in it is that I was around in the founding of Pool Re back in 1992, before Julian was involved, when we were trying to help a number of people move to the city, but we couldn't get terrorism insurance because there was no reinsurance market. Uh, and we've also been doing a lot of work, as many of you will know, on a cyber catastrophe uh, public-private insurance area, as well as a public-private education mutual for uh, universities. So Zien has been involved in these areas for ages, as well as the establishment of the clinical negligence scheme for trust. But what Julie is going to be looking at today is the whole shebang, the complete package. And I think this is a really, really important uh, session for us and something that we in the UK have done very well historically. Perhaps we can do well again. Julian, the floor is yours. Thank you, Michael, and uh, you know, real pleasure to um, you know, to be here uh, with you. Um, as you've said, really, what I wanted to do was to talk a bit about uh, managing systemic risk, uh, and I'm going to do that in the context of what Paul Reed does. So I'm going to spend a few minutes uh, talking about what Paul Reed does uh, and, and the history of Paul Reed and how it evolved, why it evolved, and how it works. Um, I'm then going to talk a little bit about um, current crisis, the current systemic uh, event and the difference between a systemic event and a cat event, a catastrophe event, uh, then talk about what response the UK has had. And then I'm going to finish uh, looking beyond just terrorism or pandemic uh, and actually into broader uh, other systemic risks that are on the horizon uh, and how those might affect us. So if you move on uh, a couple of slides, please. Um, I'll start, as I said, by looking at um, a sort of market failure event, because every now and then, uh, unfortunately, you will have events which are just bigger 
than uh, society, the insurance industry uh, can cope with. And you're seeing that right now. Uh, you saw it uh, in 9-11, which would have been described at the time as an existential event. And in the UK, uh, we had that in 1993, um, where the insurance and reinsurance markets basically withdrew their capacity. They felt that it was no longer possible uh, to uh, insure um, the events that they were being faced with. Um, because they were happening on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And the problem with that was, of course, you end up with a threat to the economy. Uh, because if you can no longer purchase insurance for, in that case, terrorism, then banks stop lending money, construction projects stop occurring, uh, inward investment into the UK uh, stops happening. And of course, the government at the time couldn't allow that to happen. And so they formed uh, in partnership, and I stress that word partnership, with the insurance industry, um, uh, Paul Ree. And the idea was that it would allow the insurance industry to continue uh, to operate uh, and offer terrorism insurance, which would allow the economy to continue to thrive. If you look at the amount of assets that Paul Ree today insures, 2.2 trillion pounds, um, what you, you had with terrorism at the time was a, a risk that you could no longer model. There wasn't the kind of models that we have today that allow you to model uh, severity of the risks, actually modeling blasts. Uh, and there weren't certainly the ability to predict frequency. Uh, you could have gone back as far as, say, Guy Fawkes and sort of looked forward at terrorism events, but that wasn't really going to allow you to calculate frequency. And frequency and severity are the two elements that you need to calculate uh, an insurance premium. So if you flip to the next slide, please, Michael, you'll see that really what Puri was intended to do was to protect the UK economy, but it was also intended to provide a safety net for insurers because insurers wouldn't have exposed themselves to a risk that they felt was going to um, effectively bet the farm. In other words, it would have been them putting their capital up uh, against a risk that they couldn't model and therefore could have caused them to go bust. But at the same, <coughs> excuse me, at the same time, what you had was a policy objective that the government was trying to achieve, which was the business was able to access available and affordable uh, insurance product, which was, of course, then facilitate the continued growth of the economy and continued inward investment. But the idea at the time, as it is with the sister company Floodry that was formed a few years ago, was that over time the market would learn how to do this risk and would bring it back. Uh, therefore, into the private market, and the government would slowly recede into the background. And I'll show you how that happens uh, in a second. But part of the need for that was to bring different different capital sources uh, into um, the risk, also understand the risk a lot better than we currently do, uh, and also to partner with government in understanding what the threat is and how that evolves. And if you go uh, to the next slide, you'll see that this isn't a unique uh, thing to the United Kingdom. Uh, there are a number of these uh, different types of uh, mechanisms that occur around the world where risk is too big for the insurance industry to cope with. And so um, government has to step in in some form. And how government steps in differs often according to the political expediency of the country. So United Kingdom, United States, in, in regards to terrorism risk specifically, the government is looking for a private market solution as opposed to simply 
um, what you get in, let's say, France or Spain, let's say, more socialist countries where the government tends to operate more as a nanny state and take the risk onto the government's balance sheet uh, and effectively recoup the money uh, by charging a tax, a levy on every insurance policy sold. In the United Kingdom, we've tried much more for a private market solution, uh, which I will demonstrate uh, on the next slide. Uh, but just before I move on, you can see here that in every country, uh, you will see these things for different risks. So whether that's flood or whether it's weather events, and that could be drought as well as flood, uh, it can be earthquake, it can be wildfire. Uh, the California Wildfire Fund just set up literally last year in the wake of those wildfires. Livestock, for those of you that remember the foot and mouth disease 10 or 15 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not a unique proposition. It's just a question of how government uh, moves into. But what I will say that these things share in common, two things. One, they were always set up after the disaster struck. And two, none of them have ever succeeded in returning the risk entirely to the private market and winding themselves up. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So if you flip to the next slide, what you see is that part of the rationale for moving this to the private market is that on day one of formation of any of these, let's call them protection gap entities, uh, is that the government is effectively carrying the entire risk. In 1993, the government was effectively on the hook for terrorism risk because there was no insurance market. But what's happened over time is that the financing of the risk has got better and better. And so what you see now is that the pooling mechanism in over 27 years, Pooley has handled 17 different terrorism events. Um, and it's built up a fund of money uh, to pay for future terrorism events. But what it's also done is it's persuaded the private market to return to the risk. And it's done that in a number of ways. One, it's influenced the consumer of the behavior, the, sorry, the behavior of the consumer so that the consumer uh, recognizes their risk and takes steps to mitigate it. And that can be, you know, by putting concrete bollards in front of a building or by putting, you know, blast proof uh, coating on your glass and therefore you get a reduction in your premium. Uh, the insurance industry over time has, through modeling techniques and understanding of the threat, taken on more and more of the risk and also retained more and more of the premium. The reinsurance market has come back to play in this after 25 years. And you can see there that 2.4 billion pounds of reinsurance capacity deployed. This is the world's largest terrorism uh, deployment of capacity. And then on that right-hand chart, you can see a very small box, 0 0.075, 75 million pounds worth of capital markets. In other words, the capital markets, your and my pension fund have invested at a very healthy coupon rate into this risk and begun to understand it. Uh, and I can tell you that that terrorism bond, which we placed 18 months ago, is now the most highly traded catastrophe bond in the world. So what you've created is a marketplace for risk that 27 years ago, nobody wanted to touch with a barge pole. And today, the taxpayer is about 10.1 billion pounds away from ever having to pay for a terrorism risk in the UK. That is successful by any measure um, because it insulates government, insulates uh, the taxpayer, and essentially makes the government a tail risk carrier today versus 27 years ago on the left-hand side where you can see it was essentially a ground-up reinsurer. If um, you flick to the next slide, 
you'll see that what this means is that the pool re has become a critical component of both the financial uh, city and also the governmental infrastructure. It's, it's carrying an awful lot of risk itself, 2.2 trillion pounds worth. Uh, it's actually managing to put some of that into the private sector. Uh, it's raising money for investors. It's increasing investment in risk mitigation. Well, what it's also doing is investing a lot of money in what I would call risk modeling. So one of the things that we now do much better than we've ever done in the past is blast modeling. So we can look at blast modeling for conventional type truck bombs, uh, for CBRN type events, even for cyber type events. And we can look at the blast not in 1D or 2D, as was the case up until a few years ago, then 3D, but now actually through computer, computational fluid dynamics, we can actually watch how a blast propagates and what damage it will actually cause. And that allows people to manage the amount of risk uh, that they've got and to buy the appropriate amount of insurance and reinsurance. Equally, the issue of severity remains the holy grail. I mean, it's without that proxy for being able to calculate severity, you're never going to have a truly private market. But by doing a lot of that work on behalf of the insurance industry, we have been able to give them a lot more comfort and they have therefore tried to price this on a more risk reflective basis because they have a far greater understanding of the risk than they did 27 years ago. And if you flick to the next slide, what you'll see is that that success is now being recognized not only by the insurance industry who put their money where their mouth is by carrying more of the risk, but also the government uh, who recognize that Puri is actually a very good example of public-private partnership. In other words, the guarantee that the government gives the industry isn't just being wasted, it's being utilized to actually create a profit opportunity for the insurance industry, whilst at the same time distancing the taxpayer from the loss. And that is something that is in the interests of all parties. The other thing that I think Corey does well, if you look at the next slide, is that it has evolved over time. In other words, it's not static. It doesn't look the same as it did uh, in 1993. In 1993, fire and explosion was typically the modus operandi of terrorists. Um, but if you look today, you can see that over time, we have reacted by adding new risks. So chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. You've only got to think of what happened in Salisbury. Uh, although that wasn't terrorism, you can see the impact of radiological material. Uh, cyber trigger has been added because we see that cyber damage by cyber trigger is something that we need to be cognizant of. And of course, very prescient for what's happening today is often these losses are caused where there's no physical damage. And so NDBI stands for non-damage business interruption, which is precisely what you saw at London Bridge in 2017, where there was no physical damage, but an awful lot of non-damage business interruption when London Bridge Borough Market was shut for 12 days um, because there was a police cordon thrown around the area. And of course, what you've seen in the last uh, few months is no physical damage, but all these premises shops up and down the country shut, unable to trade. Um, and so non-damage business interruption. And if you flip to the next slide, you'll see that in the context of terrorism, the threat continues to evolve. 27 years ago, we were worried about Irish republicanism, uh, 10 years ago, we were worried about Islamic extremism from Al-Qaeda. 
Then you switch to uh, Islamic fundamentalism in the shame of Daesh, which is a low sophistication model as opposed to a spectacular model that Al-Qaeda deployed. And today you're looking at all sorts of different things in terms of climate activism, far-right extremism, and of course, uh, possibly domestic terrorism in the shape of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Donald Trump's words, not mine. But you can see where these things are going. Uh, you've also got mass migration caused by climate change, which is causing huge population shifts, world poverty, all of which then makes it more easy to radicalize people, uh, which gives rise to terrorism. But not only the actors are changing, the vectors are changing. And so you've gone from conventional analog to digital terrorism, now to cyber terrorism. You've got the advent of drones. You've got the advent of CBRN weapons. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the thing that worries me a lot is, you know, whether terrorists are learning from what's happened from a COVID-19 scenario. Imagine if they were able to do something like that in the biological world. To finish on terrorism, flicking to the next slide, I think what we look at here are the various partnerships that Paul Ree has enjoyed with um, uh, government. It's a public-private partnership. And as I always say, it's in fact a three-legged stool because the, the work that we have done with academia has allowed us to really understand and model the threat far more than we did 27 years ago, far more than we did 10 years ago. So our understanding of the risk, the threat actors, the threat vectors is far greater due to our work with academia. Our work with government means that we understand policy far better and we're able to liaise with people like JSARC, the Office for Counterterrorism, uh, Metropolitan Police. And in fact, one of the things that we're doing a lot of now is investing some of our premium income, and we have about 6.4 billion, you can see that from the previous slide, into risk mitigation projects so that we're able to actually mitigate the threat from terrorism as opposed to simply sitting on a pile of cash and waiting for the loss to happen. With that, I'm going to move into uh, the, the, the issue of today, which is really COVID-19. So if you flick forward um, two slides, Mike, another slide, what you'll see here um, is really um, the similarities between terrorism and, 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 and COVID. Um, but I'll start with the fact that the industry, of course, is already struggling with COVID because in hindsight, what the industry said was, well, we never intended to cover pandemic. And, and realistically, had they intended to cover an event like this, they would have been charging an awful lot of premium or they would have been sublimiting the losses or they would have been narrowing the wordings. The reality is, is I suspect a combination of sloppiness uh, and sloppy wordings has meant that you've now got this situation of uncertainty and litigation uh, that is going on, which is, of course, not good uh, for anybody. Uh, and you can see some headlines there. And if you flick uh, to the next slide, you'll see the industry's response to this, which is to say, look, if the Chancellor of the Exchequer is pumping hundreds of billions of pounds into uh, this and the GWP, the gross written premium of insurance in the United Kingdom is 18 billion pounds, you can see that uh, the industry could never have intended to have covered an event like this to which your response might be, well, then it should have said that in its wordings and it should have been clearer. And I suspect that will be one of the major lessons to come out of this. That being said, the industry is now, of course, turning its attention to what happens if this happened again. Because if it were to happen again, you better make damn sure that your wordings are absolutely watertight 
and are absolutely excluding any kind of loss like this, well, that leads you to exactly what you saw in 1993, market failure. Because if you want to purchase an insurance product for a pandemic or for some kind of human communicable disease or for non-damage business interruption that arises from that, you will not be able to purchase that however much money you want to spend on it. And therefore, you've got a problem. And you can see here a range of commentators, Deputy Governor at the Bank of England, uh, select committee MPs and Stephen Catlin, who's a bit of an industry icon in this, all talking about the industry capitalization globally uh, is not sufficient to cover an event of this magnitude. And the only way you can cover an event of this magnitude is one of two ways. Either the government does it, and the government, of course, as insurer of last resort, is currently the largest insurance company in, the, in, in Britain. Uh, or you do something akin to what was done for terrorism and create some form of public-private partnership uh, in order to do that. So again, if you flick forward two slides, Michael, um, I will just briefly show you what the response in the UK so far has been to this. The first is Pandemic Re, uh, imaginatively named. Um, uh, and, and Stephen Catlin, who you saw a couple of slides ago, um, is, is leading an initiative uh, to look at a public-private response. And whilst um, I think they decided to start with a blank sheet of paper, I think what they quickly came to the conclusion was, in Poolry for managing terrorism for commercial enterprises, we have a pretty good model. And it would be foolish of us to just simply reinvent the wheel if we have something that works pretty well. But of course, the numbers that I showed you, 10 billion pounds for a terrorism event, which cover pretty much 98% of modeled losses for terrorism, dwarfs into um, almost insignificance when you think of that in the context of what we're seeing at the moment in terms of pandemic. And so the question that's polarizing the industry is, is this something that the insurance industry can really get into? Or is this something that should be left simply to government and therefore the taxpayer? And I'll come on to my views on that in a second. Um, but Pandemic Re is very definitely focused on a public-private partnership response to the current situation. And as I said earlier, it always happens post-event as opposed to pre-event, which is unfortunate. Um, there are a number of other initiatives. I'll gloss over the first, but the last two are essentially saying, well, hang on a minute. If we deal with pandemic, aren't we leaving ourselves open to other forms of uh, systemic risk which may occur in the future? Because the next virus may not be a physical one, but it may be a computer generated one. And we could find ourselves with some kind of systemic cyber attack or an outage of the national grid. And we're back to square one. The reputation of the insurance industry will be in the toilet once again. The government will have been seen to be responding post-event, not pre-event. And actually, there's an opportunity here uh, to respond to these things before they happen as opposed to after they happen. And that's the genesis of both Totus Re and the Lloyds-generated Black Swan Re. If you look at the next page, um, I think what you're seeing, and my own personal view, is that I, I agree with, with, with the view that we should be looking at a broader umbrella type approach to managing risk as opposed to dealing with them on a piecemeal approach. Because 
what you're seeing in pandemic is a non-damage business interruption. And unlike with terrorism in 1993, where it was the city of London that was the focus, it's the backbone of the economy, namely the 5.8 small business, small, small and medium-sized enterprises, 5.8 million of those that are suffering uh, because they've been shut down. And so what response can you give them? Um, and so if you look at this slide, what it's seeing is the sorts of things that we would expect uh, a public-private response to look like in this situation. Um, it should cover all businesses, not just small and medium sizes. Um, it needs to encourage businesses to purchase the cover, which means it has to be affordable. But there are also regulatory issues there about whether it should be a mandatory cover or at least mandatory to offer the cover. Because if you are a small business today, having been bailed out by the government, the chances are you're not going to want to buy an insurance product because your view will be, why would I? The government will bail me out. It has to have private market participation, in my view. If the insurance industry vacates the space that has been left by pandemic, then it will be very hard for it to remain relevant in future. It will hard, be hard for it to persuade customers that they should buy insurance products, which only respond to the things that the insurance companies feel that they can model and price and therefore want to expose themselves to. For those things that they can't model and price, they need to find different solutions and some sort of public-private partnership or pooling mechanism is a way of doing that. But to say to the government, you're on your own, we're not doing this, is wrong in my view because what the government needs are two things. One is a distribution mechanism to pump liquidity into the economy post-loss very quickly and insurance can do that. And also a way of recouping the money post-loss, which it can do via insurance and future premiums that are charged for that product as opposed to uh, what we'll probably see in the UK now, taxation. It also has to have risk mitigation incentivization. We have to be able to say to people, look, you've got to manage your, um, your, your, your risk better so that if this were to occur again in the future, you are prepared for it and your business can operate in a different way so that you're mitigating your own risk. Um, and you've got to obviously have quick claim payment. So switching through to the next slide, and I'll try and finish this off fairly quickly now so that we can move to questions. Um, we obviously believe that PULRI um, is a good mechanism that could do this, um, but this isn't an advert for PULRI, and so I'm going to move on two slides to just finish off uh, with a few comments. Um, we do believe PULRI is well-placed to do this because it's an existing mechanism. The 30 people that work with me are specialists in uh, systemic risk. It's all we do all day long is thinking about what sort of model, how do we disaster risk finance, how do we disaster risk manage, how do we model these losses, how do we price these losses, how do we get to risk reflectiveness in that pricing. This slide, however, shows you the 2017 National Risk Register and, and, and the most striking thing that I'm sure you'll have all read in the papers is that pandemic influenza was right at the top of this uh, and why are we so poorly prepared. But what it also raises the question in my mind is why the government doesn't make use of the tool of insurance in managing some of these risks, which ultimately are simply sitting on its balance sheet. And you saw that with the foot and mouth disease, um, where the government has foot the bill for that. You're now seeing it with pandemic influenza. Um, you would see it with systemic cyber, because while cyber products are available, they're not ones that would cover systemic sides of this. And so the question is, if we have a national risk register, flicking now to the next slide, why wouldn't we have a way of managing risk on a national basis? In other words, why wouldn't we have a national, for want of a better word, 
insurance company. If the intent and aim of that is resilience in the British economy, then why wouldn't we call that resilience re? And why wouldn't that have a number of different pillars sitting underneath it? Terrorism would be one, nuclear terrorism would be another, pandemic could be another, cyber, climate-related risks, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you create is a resilience re that benefits from that unlimited government guarantee that we currently have, but that the insurance industry has skin in the game through the policyholder excess, the retention by the member insurers, reinsurance purchasing, uh, insurance-linked securities, et cetera, et cetera, and that there is then underneath that uh, the behavioral influencer of risk mitigation so that you actually build up a, a, a picture of resilience from the customer who's taking steps to mitigate their own risk, incentivized by cheaper premium from an insurance company, which in turn has mutualized that risk through a pooling structure, which in turn benefits from a government guarantee when all of those things are exhausted. And if you go to the last slide, uh, I think I have one minute left, um, everybody benefits. Uh, UK business benefits because it's got uh, reduced premium uh, by dint of the fact that it's guaranteed by the government, the premium will therefore be affordable. Uh, but it's also got comprehensive insurance. There aren't gonna be these issues that you're seeing today with this litigation in the high court about what's covered, what's not covered. You've got a comprehensive, affordable protection against the disasters that could strike and that, as I said, doesn't necessarily be, need to be limited to terrorism or limited to pandemic, but it could be a broader systemic set of cover. The government, of course, benefits because it's providing a government guarantee, but it's monetizing that guarantee and being paid for the provision of that guarantee. Uh, we pay the government 200 million pound a year for terrorism. That would presumably be more if you were to create these, these different diversified risks. You would be reducing moral hazard because people would be forced to buy these products because they would not rely, therefore, on government bailing them out. You'd have increased national resilience. And then, of course, for the insurance industry, it wouldn't be betting the farm and risking insolvency if it gets it wrong. It'll have a solvency guarantee. It'll have a stable industry that's able to be relevant in providing products that matter to the customer going forward. And I think, Michael, I'll, I'll stop my comments there. Thank you. Julian, that was a wonderfully cogent exposition uh, in a very tight time frame. I really appreciate it. And I think the audience does too, given the board is lit up, lots of praise, uh, brilliant. One person wants to vote for uh, Resilience Re. Um, well, you may have skipped over uh, the second of the four initiatives. I must say, I thought Recovery has probably got the best name <laughs> that was there. And uh, I was also, uh, I, I just want to emphasize, you, it was a question I was going to ask you, but you covered it. But just to emphasize, you really do work with a team of 30 people. This is not a big bureaucratic overhead. It's, a, it's really using market forces effectively. Uh, and I just want to emphasize that to the audience. Anyway, uh, they're not here to hear me, they're here to hear you. Um, I'll, I'll probably start with a, an easy one, if I, I might. Uh, will there not always be risk events that private insurers can't deal with. And, and then a kind of an odd thing from Mike Clark, wondering, uh, looking at your slide where you talk about multi-perils, are the French actually better placed than, than Britain? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question. And, and um, uh, it's really two questions, really. I mean, will there always be multi-perils? Yeah, I think there will be. But I think if we are to avoid the situation that we've experienced over the last few months, then 
a resilience risk type structure, to my mind, provides the government at least with an infrastructure to manage the national risk register in the same way as a company manages its risk register. But to your point on the French and the Spanish, I mean, the CCR model in France, the consortium model in Spain are fantastic models. I mean, please don't get me wrong. If you look at, let's take Spanish consortio, if you're in Madrid, you're worrying about terrorism risk. If you are in the Canary Islands, you're worrying about wind risk. And by the levy that is put on your insurance policy, what you're effectively doing is each location is cross-subsidizing the other. So the Canary Islands are cross-subsidizing the affordability of terrorism insurance in Madrid, and the Madrid residents are cross-subsidizing the affordability of wind uh, in, in, in the Canary Islands. The problem with the model, problem in inverted commas, the downside or the, or the weakness, if you like, of the model is it, it effectively creates the nanny state um, because there is no private market involvement. The private insurance market, reinsurance market, capital markets do not participate in that risk. It is a pure tax administered by civil servants, no disrespect to the civil servants, but they're not insurance professionals. And so really all you can do is, uh, is increase and decrease the size of the levy according to how many claims there are in a particular year, as opposed to risk manage, risk mitigate, and risk model. Um, now you and I have uh, beat our heads uh, with some success, but frequently uh, gone home and nursed a, a sore head uh, against the government in trying to get some of these concepts across uh, over many years. Um, and uh, yet we are seeing some, some, some interesting signs. I would point to the collective defined contribution benefits, which featured on a, a webinar earlier this week, as a sign that the government is beginning to understand the collectivization of risk, but also the management of it. Um, Bob McDowell asked a really interesting question, uh, regionalization, city, states, uh, and the current you know, leveling up model. Uh, perhaps people like uh, you and I should be focused on this regional uh, example. Is this an area where we could do uh, your resilience re for a region or for London, as opposed to having to do it nationally? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's a really interesting question. And, and, you know, before I answer the question or attempt to answer the question, I'll just make one other point. EIOPA, which is the European, you'll know what it stands for better than me, but essentially the pension fund has actually come out this week and suggested that there would be a EU-wide resilience re, well, no, EU-wide pandemic re. Um, so in other words, they've gone the opposite direction and basically said, let's have the entirety of the EU fund the pandemic re. Um, now, I find that fascinating because, you know, normally what happens in these situations is the British government says, well, I don't want to pay for uh, a pandemic that occurs in France. And the French government says, well, I don't want to pay for one that occurs in, in Italy. But clearly they've seen something about the size of this risk and the ability to get different you know, nations and economies back up and running, that they've gone for the opposite approach. But if you are a local authority, regional authority, and you've got your budget from government, I think those budgets are under an enormous amount of pressure because they're always being cut as far as I can make out. And therefore, you know, what do you prioritize? Are you going to prioritize the purchasing of pandemic or terrorism insurance over you know, a new set of books for the, for the, for the schools? Um, but what I think we need to do as an industry and what local government and government needs to do is to disrupt the current model 
of risk transfer and start to think of different ways of risk transfer. And so that question may well be one where pools of local authorities decide to pool whatever money that they have for managing risk together uh, in, in a smaller form of this so that they're able to purchase and leverage insurance purchasing themselves. Just just to be clear, at the moment, Poolry is UK only. And have you ever thought about writing risk outside of the UK or your remit doesn't permit that? Our, our remit doesn't permit it, but some of my sister companies around the world do exactly that. Um, they will diversify their risk because bear in mind the diversification risk is, is what makes insurance and reinsurance cheaper. Um, some of my sister companies around the world do exactly that. They will reinsure. I buy reinsurance from two or three of my sister companies around the world. If you actually look at the nuclear liability scheme that was set up in the 60s, that actually, they all reinsure each other. So we, the British, reinsure 20 other countries around the world, and they in turn reinsure us. It's actually not a silly idea. Um, now, we, a couple of people would like to just understand better, tease apart things. So Charles Vermont points out that the insurance industry doesn't cover war or civil war in the UK. Why do you believe pandemic is different? <laughs> That's a huge question, by the way, um, because, of course, you know, 100 years ago when the exclusion for war was written, um, it essentially referred to, you know, essentially parking your tanks on my lawn. It was a physical declaration of war um, followed up by an invasion of territory. Today, war, of course, doesn't happen that way. In fact, I think the last time war was declared was 1940 or 1939. Um, you know, the Falklands War was never a declared war. Uh, and I think, you know, the Americans have certainly not been at war since the Second World War either. Moreover, um, if you look at what happened in Salisbury to agents of the Russian state, you know, arguably, is that an act of war? So the definition of war itself is a whole big question, which I won't go into uh, here. But why is pandemic different? Um, I think part of the problem is that the insurance industry was designed to cover physical property. Um, if you look at what now businesses are concerned with, not only the non-damage business interruption point that I pointed out, but the vast majority of assets of businesses are no longer physical property. They are intellectual property, they're intangibles, brand, reputation, supply chain interruption. These are difficult risks to ensure I accept. But unless we as an industry find ways to participate in those risks, then I think over time we just become irrelevant, don't we? Now, another issue that recurs with schemes like this and with many mutuals is compulsion. So Lloyd Greenside is curious, do you think, that, you know, what's the critical mass? Does it need to be a legal requirement? Tanji Morgan points out that, you know, when you're looking at risk in this field, terrorism and flood are events that are physical damage and usually occur in a specific geographic area where you can get a handle on it. But as you've indicated, pandemic and systemic risks, uh, to make these products affordable, you've got to have the spread, but it doesn't need to be mandatory. Yeah, and, and yeah, I know Tanji well. She's obviously you know, from one of the regulators, and you know, I think that's a to me that is a fundamental question of uh, 
if you look at the penetration rate in terrorism, and I referred to the 2017 uh, event in Borough Market, the take-up rate of terrorism among small businesses is single digit. It's less than 10%. And so the question becomes, do you uh, accept the moral hazard that then comes post the event? So post 2017, there was a meeting uh, in Borough Market where the then uh, small business minister went along to Borough Market and we were very clear with them that if they agreed to bail out those small businesses, effectively nobody would ever buy terrorism insurance again. And so the question becomes, should you mandate the purchasing of these kind of insurances? And I think we have to be realistic that you know, if you did mandate them, I think you would end up with a very large pool of premium very, very quickly. But the reality is the British government is highly unlikely to do that. And so the alternative is what we call mandating the offer of the insurance, which avoids that moral hazard. Because if I offer you a product and I say, here is your product, it's going to cost you £30 to purchase this product. And if you cut by it, it's going to cover you in all of these eventualities. And if you tick the box to say, no, thank you, I don't want that. Well, after the event, you can hardly then claim compensation from the government because you were offered a very affordable, very comprehensive product. And so mandatory offer is probably more where I would focus my efforts. And I think in the US, mandatory offer results in about a 60% take-up rate, uh, which is pretty good, um, as opposed to, as I said, our single-digit product. And there are lots here. of sectors like startups where this is probably just inappropriate. you got to get the business going in the first place, at least in most circumstances, one would argue. So I think yeah, mandatory offer is a very, very good message there. Um, but I just make one other point, Michael, on that, and that is that one thing, again, for the regulator to think about, if I start saying, well, here's my terrorism product, and here's my pandemic product, and here's my cyber product, and here's my climate product, Too small confusing. businesses will never buy that. Yeah, no, so we have to that. overcome the bundling issue as well yeah. and, and figure out a way where we can offer a, a single product that provides the cover for this, as opposed to asking a small businessman or woman to buy five different products, which is never going to happen. And, and that's one slice on the risk. There's a couple of questions here on the, the other one. Uh, Trevor Hilder and Bob McDowell sort of asking the same thing. I mean, how about doing this at several levels of recursion? You know, what would the merits be of like a sequential pool, one, two, three, four, uh, to, to kind of look at this by a size? Because you were looking there at the SME market uh, being inclusive. Any thoughts on that quickly? Yeah, I mean, look, again, the French terrorism model is a good way of looking at it. They, they basically dissect it by small business and large business. So they charge a different price for the small business. They make it different terms of conditions. Um, and they have a much higher take-up rate in small business than we do um, because big business isn't the problem. Large businesses buy these kind of products. If you had a product for the pandemic, they'd buy it. Um, the other way you can bifurcate it is, is in the cover that you provide because you could say, look, you know, um, the addition of, I don't know, uh, CBRM makes the product a lot more uh, expensive. If you want, you can buy this in two forms and we'll bifurcate the cover and take out the CBRN element and that'll make the product even cheaper as long as you understand what it is you're taking out. I don't know enough. Uh, I'm not a scientist enough to know about pandemic, what, what the equivalent of that is, but, you know, there are ways of, of slicing and dicing um, which need further work. 
Um, we have a participant here, Madeline Moon uh, is online and she's asking, have you had any engagement with the devolved administrations? But uh, an earlier question really, how quickly do you think such insurance could be covering pandemics given that people are looking at waves two, three, what have you? Um, is this realistic that we're gonna see something this side or is this current crisis too late? Um, I think I think if you wanted to do something for this current crisis, you would have to do something very quickly to essentially temporarily expand the remit of an existing entity. I think to start a new entity from scratch would be almost impossible. Uh, and also, I think, let's be realistic, the insurance industry is highly unlikely to take on even a dollar of risk for an event that is already underway. And so realistically, you would have to have the government pretty much backstop this 100% and you would essentially be using the insurance industry as a distribution mechanism and as a recoupment mechanism. So yeah, I think you could do it quickly, but it would have to be uh, in the same way as 93, Paul Reeve was set up in three months, I think you'd have to do it with an existing entity. Whether we've had discussions with devolved administrations, is that what you asked me? Um, That's right. No, we've obviously had discussions with, with some of the regulators, with some of the you know, central government, but not, not with uh, regional administrations. A few people are going to have to draw things to a close soon because it's, the, the board is absolutely full and I'll send you um, the questions and comments afterwards so you can respond to people if you wish. Uh, but one of the things that a lot of people are asking about here is the climate risk. You know, that too would show up on this risk register. Is that a category that you would put into your resilience tree? Yeah, I mean, look, some climate risks the insurance industry deals with very well. And that's that distinction that I drew right at the beginning between catastrophe risk, which the insurance industry deals with because it can model it, it can calculate a risk reflective premium, and there's enough capacity to deploy. Systemic risk is very different. And so individual climate risks like a flood or a, a, you know, a, a windstorm are modelable. But I think when you get to um, thinking about the overall impact of climate change, uh, just like aging population or long-term healthcare, those require a different way of thinking about the risk. And I think that can only be done in conjunction with government because there's a policy objective that needs to be achieved as well as an insurance. Now, um, we have a, a number of questions, but I'm just going to I'm going to do something unusual. I hope uh, I'm going to try and answer a question for you, and then I want you to correct me, <laughs> okay? Uh, because I think it's a great question to end this session on. It's from Hugh Morris, and he's asking, "How does Julian envisage that private risk capital can help events at the scale of COVID-19? Won't nation states always end up shouldering the majority of the financial burden when risk catastrophes of this scale occur?" And I would answer this as saying the whole purpose of Resilience 3 is not to play with the financing of it per se. It's actually to give government the tools to help everybody manage a risk that is already on the government's balance sheet. Your correction, please. Uh, I'm hardly going to disagree with the eminent professor. Um, uh, no, I think, I think uh, absolutely spot on, Michael. I would just make one subtle observation and that is that 27 years ago there was zero pounds in the bank to deal with terrorism risk you have to start somewhere and you know yes i agree in the current crisis has demonstrated how big this is 
but let's hope that these aren't annual events. And also, if you add more risk into the resilient three, you get that diversification, increased premium. Eventually, you get more exposure from the capital markets and the reinsurers. And so financing does occur, even if it's to a limited extent. If we had more time, I mean, Ben Koppelman would be interested in how you could use this insurance to help uh, the take up of some of the track and trace applications. Could they? Could this type of insurance incentivize that sort of thing, which I think we could go into. Hugh Purser is very interested in how, do you, how would you apply your BAS, BAS modeling experience uh, to business interruption and pandemic experience. So a, a, lot, of, a lot of questions out there. Um, but um, sadly, um, I'm also getting many, many nice comments about your presentation, which means uh, it's normally a sign that I have to bring it to a close. Uh, so if you could just hold on a second, I've got uh, three rounds of thanks uh, to give. Uh, the first one, uh, quite quite naturally, is, is thanks to our sponsors. I hope those of you who are online have enjoyed this. Uh, Julian has certainly brought together technology, economics, and finance uh, all there uh, and all about risk. So. Well done to that, and I thank you very much for allowing us to range as you do widely and freely across the sector. Uh, I'd also point out we do have a number of webinars forthcoming next week. Uh, an interesting one uh, talking about what lockdown has been like for people managing employee share schemes. I'm going to have a fascinating session with Edmund Fitton Brown. That's going to be very much about security. If you read Edmund's background, you'll realize this could be a really interesting global security talk and a, a very different one for us uh, very focused on uh, climate change and biodiversity loss etc uh, an old friend of mine mark schlossman is going to be talking about a very very special project on history specimens uh, it's much more interesting than you could possibly believe uh, mark's also a top-end uh, photographer and so some of the imagery is going to be absolutely fantastic. Anyway, uh, enough about that. Really, the real thanks have to go to you, Julian. You very kindly uh, suggested uh, that you know, you'd like to cover this topic. I was thrilled, and I've always enjoyed working with you over the years. Unfortunately, I'm unable to, using the technology, give you a proper round of applause or anything like that. So at these FS Club sessions, I traditionally bring, bring out my little Buddhist applause meter by karmic clapper if you will and i'd like to thank you very much on behalf of the audience thank you and i would hope uh, that there's a chance we might be bringing you back quite frequently if we if uh, you, you know we're successful at getting uh, this resilience remodel moving and uh, you, i suspect given the comments here about the full support of of our club uh, you and steven uh, to get to get all that happening uh, but unfortunately, um, I have to bring this to a close. These always seem terribly abrupt. Uh, but uh, goodbye to you, Julian. Goodbye, one and all. And hope to see you all soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.